rumor, a currently circulating story or report of uncertain or questionable truth. This is Rumors of Grace, where I talk to people rumored to have found beauty and truth in broken and uncommon places. Hello, hello. Welcome, friends, to another episode of Rumors of Grace. As always, this is Bob Hutchins. And today I feel like we've come full circle around because sitting across the silver table from me, once again, uh, I think my first guest that I started the podcast on was Chad Jarnigan. Chad, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Bob. It's good to be back. Yeah, it's great. And your book is finally out. So we're going to jump into his book that we mentioned, I believe, uh, on the podcast like a year and a half ago or however, two years ago, however long that was, you were finishing it up. It's called Learning to Be, Reconstructing Peace and Spiritual Health by Chad Jarnigan. Uh, before we jump into our conversation, just give you a Primer, a reminder of Chad. Chad is a former, former baseball player, an ordained priest in the Anglican Communion. He's an artist and a writer. He's a contemplative and passionate dreamer. He's also an Enneagram type, type 5 with an almost equal four wing, so we'll talk about that. <laughs> Chad spent approximately 20 years as a touring musician. He continues to co-write and play music on occasion. He served as a member of the President's Advisory Council on Faith-Based and Neighborhood Partnerships from 2002 to 2007, and he's the founding rector of Luminous Parish, an Anglican mission to Nashville in Franklin, Tennessee. So, um, Chad, 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 uh, I have really been enjoying this book. It's taken me almost a year to work through it with my other pile of other books I've been reading through. But um, before we jump into that, one of the conversations that you and I have had quite a bit over the past year or two years um, is this whole idea of deconstruction. Uh, your subtitle of your book is Reconstructing Peace and Spiritual Health. And, you know, that phrase, deconstruction, has become a buzzword. People get sick of hearing it. I don't even like using it anymore because the connotations of it are um, simultaneously negative to so many people and uh, experiential to others that have gone through it. But before we jump in to your book and talk about the, the topics of this reconstruction of peace and, and spiritual health, I want to camp on it because, you know, as, as we've talked, there has not been good definitions, good explanations, and really healthy conversations around this idea of what is deconstructing your life, deconstructing your faith, deconstructing your personality. Um, and I know you have been through that, um, and that's why you and I are friends, and I respect you so much, is that you've been through that, and you have come out the other side and reconstructed very healthily, I believe, uh, in your faith. But are you good if we camp on that for a little bit? And yeah, I would sure. love to understand your own story. Mm -hmm. And then can you help help to, to define it and put it into some sort of context for our conversation? Yeah, and I think what happens most of the time is, you know, we hijack or we allow, you know, words to be hijacked mm. and then certain um, agendas kind of attach themselves to those things, right? Mm -hmm. So something like deconstruction, if you were to talk with certain people in the clinical therapy world, they would say deconstructing doesn't have an intention of reconstruction. Mm. So you deconstruct something, you leave it, and then you start over. 
you do something else. And the fact is, I get that, and I'm not trying to debate that. I believe what we it's helpful for us when we deconstruct to have an idea and a concept of reconstruction because the deconstruction process is not the point. Uh, I think we find the the big meanings of life, the big problems, um, we unearth trauma and things that were there that we didn't know were there. Um, so for me personally, I, you know, I, man, there's, it's so deep because all of us connect to story mm. and we're going to hear something resonate and then we lean into it. For me, there's uh, so much leaning into the deep calls of the world, um, deep crises, deep uh, questions, deep mysteries. And I've always been that type of person before I even knew what Enneagram was and typology and who, what I resonated with personality wise and walking through life with lots of say hiccups or hurdles to the point where anyone that that is raised in a home with a step parent, Mm. for example, um, that is something that will connect you to someone's story. You lean into that when you hear it because you're like, Oh, they're like me. And for myself, I grew up in that type of home where it was me and my mom and my stepdad and eventually my half sister and those types of things have an effect on your life. Mm. It's not just all negative. It's very positive too. I had a father figure in my home. Many people don't have that. Mm-hmm. So growing up with some of that social and relational fracturing that was different from others around me mm-hmm. made me feel different. Mm-hmm. I had a different last name than my friend's all grew up in the same house with the same last name as their dad. Mm-hmm. And that was unique for me in my personal context. I think so that was the beginning of, you know, okay, I'm starting out with a bit of an unusual way. And in my context, that was meaningful. That's not um, incredibly special. But as you process fast forward into my 20s, when I really started trying to figure out who I was, all of that stuff came back. And then I started finding spiritual significance and the things that I had read, the things that I had heard. And when you tour in those types of environments, you hear a lot. You hear a lot of crazy, wacky ideas. You hear a lot of orthodox Mm -hmm. concepts, things that are historic, things were meaningful things that are just made up on the fly because someone could knows how to work a crowd. And so I was exposed to all of those things and keeping in mind that where I came from form, you know, where we come from forms and informs who we are. Mm -hmm. And until we have to, you know, kind of like that, you know, reorder disorder kind of idea that roar talks about a lot. There's a lot of that happening. And uh, when I started to get serious about my faith, I started looking around at some of what I thought I knew, and I couldn't really buy into it anymore. 
And then once I came off of the road in my 30s and started uh, working at a church, I started looking around like, okay, this is playing out on a daily basis now. This is affecting the way we live, the way we give, where we go, and uh, who we hang out with. And I believe that after I started swimming in those waters and buying into some of that lifestyle and some of those beliefs, I really realized that I didn't necessarily believe most of what I was even singing. And because there there wasn't a lot of opportunity for me to continue a formative process, it was always doing. I had a gift and talents, and that's what I did. And no one really helped me to come to a formative, through a formative process. And were the truths... The truths and the constructs very static. They were immovable, correct? Yes, for the most part. Yeah, I think there's a lot there that I can look back on and understand of the the context and the ramifications for what we were a part of. And then eventually, you know, I can say some of that was beautiful mm-hmm. and some of it wasn't, mm-hmm. you know. And so now I've kind of known how to, to have a bit more perspective but in those situations, I started to uh, I went through these seasons of uh, it wasn't enough, you know, uh, the the ideology, the the beliefs, the the system, the process. Is those this things, all there is? Yeah, this is not enough. The, it, there was not enough room. There wasn't enough space for what I felt that even spoke of God, and uh, and I believe that. I had to start just digging. And there's this idea that um, we find more, and or the, it's that sense of deep calling to deep, mm-hmm. right? We lean into the things that compel us deeper. And at some point when you feel like you've hit the bedrock and there's no other way further, you have to figure out what's next. And so for me, I was, I've always been a contemplative person. That's something that, you know, I, along with my thoughts as well as right. digging deeper into things that uh, belief and meditation and how I was always told that, you know, prayer is a doing and an active kind of uh, concept. Activity more than yeah, a Yeah, more than being. a being. And uh, prayer and meditation were always meant to be together because they were also meant to listen and be in stillness. And uh, when the more I kind of unpacked those realities that were there, but kind of on the peripheral of my reality, I leaned into those and I started practicing these things. Mm-hmm. So at some point I got to the place where the personal devotion and the personal depths that I had come to realize and continuing to realize with an openness and an open hand, there was no place to continue to be in those environments of uh, that I found myself in, in the big mega church kind of situation. And um, I would say during my time of leading uh, musical worship, during good seasons of those, uh, that time, I would have considered myself a... <laughs> an agnostic worship leader. 
you know, and in that sense of like, I believe that there was a God, I believe that there was a higher being and a higher power, but I didn't necessarily believe that anything that we were doing mattered. Mm. And I wasn't seeing transformation uh, in myself or those around me. I just saw a lot of activity. Mm. And what is that quote? Uh, we should never confuse activity for accomplishment. And I think we could even go deeper into that. And so for me, I needed to go into a deeper place. And and the more I hung out with um, therapists, the more listening, the more postures and rhythms of of listening and, and, and learning. Was there an event for you? Like for me, it's something that happened that um, I kind of, blew up my life in, to, in a way, um, and it was a series of, of happenings that that uh, propelled me and forced me into this, like you said, hitting rock bottom, thinking that there's nothing more, and then discovering that there was a whole other world underneath that. Mm-hmm. Um, for you, was it just a gradual unraveling of things, or was it, uh, was it some event? Yeah, it was a gradual. It was this long, grueling walk, crawl, and uh, struggling with lots of different things. And I didn't know how to put names to some of that. And uh, counseling and therapy was a helpful process to help me unpack um, tragic deaths, um, traumas that I experienced at a young age that no one ever helped me to kind of navigate. And so there's lots of different things that I could look back on and say, oh, this was just a, uh, I was never really a, a codependent kind of personality. I was never attaching myself to something to for sustainability purposes or existence. It was, uh, there was more to it than that. And so eventually when I started to say, this is my reality, now what do I do with this? Mm-hmm. You know, and... I, I operated in an environment doing something that I didn't believe in for years. Mm-hmm. And underneath that, I began to... Now, no one gave it the title, that label of deconstruction, but that's exactly what I found myself in. Can I make a point here and just pause you? Please. Because I think what you've just described is, um, is so, so common. But... Can you can you unpack for me basically this idea of and because I want to emphasize it is that when the, when you go through this through your own contemplation like you or there's some traumatic event or um, you know you find yourself thrust into this I want to talk about the lack of volition in this because this is not something that you wake up one day and go, I think I'm going to do something different. I'm just going to walk away from this. That's not how it works on Mm -hmm. any level. Mm -hmm. It's something, and I don't know who said it, if it was Richard Rohr or or some other um, contemplative, it's something that's done to you. Mm -hmm. It's out of your control to a degree. Um, 
talk to me about that because I think that's so, so important for people to understand, because especially for people who have loved ones, who people are on the outside looking in, um, it can so easily be seen as, what do you, what do you mean? You know, if you believe something, you can't unbelieve it. You, maybe you never believed it. Mm. Talk to me about that. Yeah, because, I mean, and there's a lot to that. There's, you know, an undoing process and an unknowing process allows us to have a bit more of a, a sobriety check, right? So we look at our realities differently when we see it from a different perspective or experience something that allows us a perspective to even occur. And sometimes we are forced into a, a situation, right, where we can't, we don't have the power, we didn't control it, we didn't decide to change our minds or implement something new into our life. We just kind of stumble into it. And I think that that is more of our realities that we should give ourselves permission to understand that it's okay to not be okay. And also, how do we hold this notion of, you know, you control your own, you know, everything. The reality is life gives you what you have to do and you have to navigate it from there because a situation that maybe it was a decision that we made sure that put us in that situation very much so but there has to be this uh, it, when we find ourselves in a in a position of you know lack of control or a, a chaotic life or a place that we don't really necessarily want to be we have to figure out ways to be okay with that and just sit in it. Mm. And then in doing that, I think the way forward reveals itself. Mm. And, and it's through what we're reading. It's through what we're hearing, what we're listening, the friends and family that we have around us, um, the, who we listen to, who we don't listen to. It's, it's all of those things are connected and they help us, uh, figure out our, um, I don't know, our equilibrium again, Mm -hmm. you know, and, I think there's more opportunities for us to do that today than there has ever been because you don't just write a book (laughs) and say, well, I'll read read that at some point. Now we have access to podcasts and information instantaneously when someone says, oh, I heard about this the other day. You need to read this or you need to hear this. And uh, and, and because they know and it's going to be helpful. And um, I think that there's something to be said for giving each other permission to have space. And I'm not really sure that it's ever going to fully resonate the same with everyone. There's going to be things that stand out. There's some people that cannot sit still. They're not, they, they don't have the capacity to listen. They can't sit still. They have to be doing something at all times. Part of that's a personality but it's also undiagnosed and unacknowledged um, issues and tensions that we all kind of need to be revealed. And, and, like, some, and some of that, too, is 
our wiring and, and personality. You know, sure. those listeners know that I'm a big fan of the Enneagram. Um, for you as a five, um, your wiring, um, mm. as much as you'd like to operate in different energies on the nine Enneagram numbers, which you do at times, um, you you tend to resonate in that five area, in that mm-hmm. four area, where you're a calm, still, contemplative person by nature. Whereas me, with a seven, um, I can go there, and that's why I think we're friends, is because in my when I'm really healthy, I go to a five, mm-hmm. um, which I like to hang out with you because that's when I'm healthiest. <laughs> Maybe I'm, I'm friends with a lot of sevens for yeah. some reason, yeah. and so and that's and why I think I like to hang out with you guys as well because there is the a bit more of a hey yeah let's do that that's a right. great idea. There's an activity that involved with that. And to, to your point, that's to, your, to, to my point is it, it, understanding that self awareness and understanding that hey it's okay and you don't have to feel shamed. Mm for being quiet and contemplative. You don't have to be shamed if you like to have a great time and and, and you're uncomfortable sometimes uh, in that situation. Mm -hmm. That's okay too. Um, I think part of this journey um, as, you know, you can call it deconstruction, awakening, existential crisis, dark night of the soul, whatever you want to call it, hero's journey. Part of it I think for me, which has been a blessing and I um, a curse at the same time, is a profound self awareness mm-hmm. of who you are and what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, and being willing to explore and sit in those and uncover and unravel those. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that if I were to add to this that deconstruction concept or my experience of walking through that, I was living under a weighted blanket uh, before it was trendy. And it was the what someone told me of myself is what I believed. Mm. And, and they typecast me into this creative musician, whatever. And I did that. Mm-hmm. And I was told by multiple like superiors that I had too thin of a skin and I need to toughen up need to thicken my skin a bit. And no, I, I had no framework for that because I didn't think that I actually had thin skinned. So eventually I just started to believe it because I kept hearing it so often. You know, all oh, your, your artist types and those kinds of things. And eventually I can look back on that and say, that was an infliction. That was someone giving me a, a weight to wear. And that wasn't who I was. Right. It's My a, self-awareness was way deeper than that, and it was always a contrary to what I was being told, which is, you know, eventually damaging, you know, and 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 somewhat unhealthy. Mm-hmm. So when you get to the place where you're a bit more aware of yourself, knowing how you're going to react and what you, you know, <laughs> like I always had party rules when I hung out with groups of people mm-hmm. in a in a party setting or any kind of thing. Right. I, and, and my wife can tell you that this, I mean, I have signals and <laughs> you know, it's like, help me. I got to get out of here. And then if you just don't see me, you're knowing that, Oh, he's, he's done and I'm out. That means I'm probably outside wandering around somewhere. Right. <laughs> something. Right. And, but there's awareness there, right? So those environments, um, sap you of emotional, and oh, spiritual energy. Right. Yeah. Okay. But what, 
the undercurrent of all of this uh, in a self-awareness standpoint was, uh, you know, years ago I was, I was given this amazing opportunity to spend a couple days with Brendan Manning. Mm. And I'm not sure if we've talked about that before, but I wrote about that a little bit. And, you know, he, at one point he's, he makes the statement that healing our image of God heals the image of ourselves. Mm. And I wrote that down in this little notebook and eventually come back to it. And I have meditated on that numerous, numerous times. So good. And I sat with him with a room full of artists, you know, for a couple of days. And one of the things he led us through this meditative, you know, kind of contemplative time. And he allowed us to, you know, change our posture, open our hands, open our minds and hearts. And we just kind of rested in this space where he was like, I am my beloved's and my beloved's is mine. We resonated and and prayed that and said that um, for you know long what felt like a long time. Mm. A room full of probably feelers. Eventually, there was just this ripple of emotion in the room. Mm. There was uncontrollable sobbing mm. that began. It didn't. It wasn't instantaneous. It was like it was like. We were so constricted and gripped, and then through this time, and I think this is what meditation does for us, we loosen our grip, and our our knuckles start getting the blood back into them. Mm. And whatever that is that we start to feel comes out. And in, for that room that I was in, we experienced that healing of an image over the course of moments. Mm. And I keep coming back to that statement that he says. And that he said, so I think that the awareness piece is not to be neglected. It's not to be uh, marginalized. I think, I mean, I've heard so many, you know, people say, you know, that self-care is becoming an idol, right? (laughs) Well, if we've never taken care of ourselves before, it is certainly not an idol. Right. It is, uh, it's a need, and if it's something that we we elevate to the detriment of those around us, or in some capacities to our responsibilities, I understand the tension there of us having to be awake and aware of doing things. But the self care aspect comes with self awareness. You don't know that you need care unless you're aware. Mm. And that is a portion of, I think, our faith and the church overall. That they don't, it doesn't have a history of doing that really well. Mm. And so I remember, you know, sitting in staff meetings, hearing folks like on staff so frustrated that a family couldn't be there to serve on this coming Sunday because they were on vacation. And they were like, where's your loyalty or where's your devotion and and that sounds like compassion fatigue to me or ministry fatigue that's what that's saying is that you don't care about the wellness of your your people serving and volunteering because they're on vacation you would rather them be there to serve your spot and that is representation of not being self-aware that is you you know, at all costs, 
doing your job and forgetting that the people that you work with and that you have and that you care for are humans mm, that so good. have needs and uh, and cares of their own and they yeah, need this, that the self-care thing um is interesting because those of us who were brought up in a more conservative or evangelical um, construct specifically i find this in american christianity um i think it's the reason so many times that we have uh, struggle loving others unconditionally and loving other human beings well. We, we say it with our mouths, but we don't do it very well. And one of the reasons I'm beginning to understand, because I see it in myself, is that we don't really love ourselves mm. properly. We've been told that we're broken. We've been told that if you focus on yourself too much, that um, you're selfish, that you know the whole, the whole line of... Um, if anything good comes out of me, it's from Jesus. It's not for me. <laughs> right. And so when Jesus said this deep, deep truth, love others as you love yourself, that that has no meaning because if you see yourself as broken and as um, something less than that you don't, you're not, quote, selfishly focusing on your own self and psychology and well-being, mm-hmm. then how are... How, you're going to love other people the same way. Yep. In other words, you're going to see them as broken and see them as problems and see them as being selfish. And I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. I think what he was saying is a healthy person um, is self-aware and takes care of themselves and loves themselves, and that's the way that you love other people. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of, of what it means to be truly human. Would you agree with that? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. I think there's something to be said for giving ourselves that that grace when we come to that place of awareness. It's uh, just letting it happen. And the healing that comes along with us maybe looking at something that we can go, oh, I can't believe that I was this mm-hmm. or I acted like this or was in a system that I supported you know, or whatever. Like we have to give ourselves grace in that moment mm. of uh, awareness because mm. uh, it's a beautiful way forward. Mm. You know, let's jump into your book. Um, this was a long time in coming. I know you labored over it, and and I we even talked in the midst of you writing it. The book is called "Learning to Be: Reconstructing Peace and Spiritual Health." And for you, um, I I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong. This is pretty much your personal story of when you went through your unraveling, um, how you put it the pieces back together in a healthy way. And for you, you chose um, contemplative Anglican Christianity. That's the stream that that that's the rebuilt building, the the rebuilding and reconstruction that you went down. Mm-hmm. And so the book provides um, that pathway for so many of us. Um, and it's broken up into different sections, and I'll just kind of go over them, and we can talk about some of them. The first section, uh, the first five chapters, is pay attention, and you talk about noise, the art of awareness. I'm going to talk about noise specifically. Mm-hmm. The second section is postures, and you talk about different types of posture of stillness, posture of hope, reconciliation, hospitality. The next section is wonder, paradox in the unknown. Uh, the thin places, estrangement. And then the last one is reconstruction. 
uh, post-church, uh, keep going, looking back for our future, the Canterbury path, the way forward. So you've broken it down into uh, different um, different sections, and I want to talk a little bit about each one. I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but I think it's important to understand for those people, this book, uh, and I want to hear your, your take on it, I think it's for people who um, are really looking for a way forward, mm-hmm. who still love Jesus, but don't love everything else about their life, the church, Christianity. Um, they're struggling to make sense of it. They just really love the person of Jesus, mm-hmm. but everything else doesn't make sense to them anymore. Mm-hmm. I think this book is is perfect for that. What, what's your thoughts on that? I hope that that is true, and I've I've seen a lot of activity and. I've heard a lot back from people that the book's out and had a lot of conversations and several events about it. And, you know, we, this very well could have been a situation where three fourths of the book is a preparation for everyone's deconstruction. Mm-hmm. And we could have, you know, capped, you know, or, or, or split it off a little bit and said, here's one way forward that, Reconstruction into more contemplative, you know, um, spirituality would mean Anglicanism, right? Mm -hmm. One section we could have very easily gone and said, maybe your reconstruction is a completely different stream entirely, you know? And, uh, And I think that I've had some of those conversations, and I think that's a healthy thing as well. But certainly for me, I wanted to speak to the experience Mm. that I've had the research that I have done and those that I've invited into that circle to help with that, which has been a lot of, like we've said earlier, is uh, like counseling and therapists. And um, that that type of world has allowed me to put words and framing to things that weren't accessible within my experience of the church. And so, yeah, I wanted that to be something that allowed people, you know, no other expectation but just to say there is a way forward. And because of my experience, this is what I want to present. And uh, the cool thing about that, in real time, we've seen this play out with the parish, right? This is parish life activity. This is the those that find their way or stumble their way into our parish on Sunday afternoons. Um, that in itself has been a healthy way forward for them. And so in a way, everything that we're acting out has come from a similar path of those who are sitting in the uh, the seats with us. I've um, been on this you know, pilgrimage as well. Mm. The first section is, uh, pay attention. So, Chad, talk to me a little about chapter three. I know this is um, something that, that that you talk a lot about. When I do attend um, a church service, I do come to to Luminous to your parish, um, and and I've I've observed that you talk a lot about this. I think it's near and dear to you because of your background. But chapter three talks about uh, noise, and um, one of the things that you say 
uh, is in a society that breeds narcissism and instant reaction, a true and even disciplined pursuer of the holy might feel strange or awkward about sitting, kneeling, or laying down. Thoughts of all that we could be doing will attempt to drown out the entire purpose of getting alone to be still, silent, contemplative. Don't be surprised if your vices, struggles, or addictions reveal themselves. That will be the crossroad choice of what we do at that time. Seek peace or give in to the self-centered nature that we constantly combat. Unpack that for me. Well, in our society, that's our litmus test. How fast we can run, how much we can do, how many things that we can multitask at one time, how many screens can we have on at one point. And our sole aspect of that, which we're all, this is integration, right? Our minds, bodies, souls, our emotions, what we can and cannot do with our body is all connected. And eventually, I I always talk about sustainability, Mm. right? So I know the pace. When I run, um, I know my pace. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it that was trial and error initially. I overpaced myself before and I wasn't able to run three miles because I was going too fast. Mm. Now I can run close to six or seven Mm. in a way because I have paced myself Mm -hmm. and would like to go further. But in order to do that, I have to do certain things to get there. So it's almost as if our society is saying that there we have we are all the the same person mm. wired the same way that can do the same things so we have this presentation in all the social media outlets there that that say the same like life and success looks like whoever's instagram or whatever that is like there is a there's a litmus test for all of this and we compare ourselves to what we see, what we feel and hear. And so the contrast to that for sustainability, let's just say, I think we can all agree some level of all of this is unsustainable, right? So it's the activities, our schedules, our expectations, those are all unsustainable. So to find sustainability is to be still, is to combat the noise, well, first of all, have awareness enough to acknowledge it, yes. that it exists. And uh, because if we have a, and I'm coming from an audio standpoint, if you are exposed to a noise level of 90-something dB mm. for an extended amount of time, you lose hearing. Mm. So whatever that figurative or literal noise is that you are living with, if you're exposed to it for an extended amount of time, you will lose feeling and hearing. Mm. And so maybe we lose, maybe we're losing spiritual healing Mm. or hearing. Maybe we're losing relational hearing. Do you think it's unique? Um, I think I know your answer, but do you think, I'm sure every generation said the same thing, Mm -hmm. but for us, as we try to be still and contemplate and think and pray and ponder and whatever meditation and stillness looks like for you, 
you know, the, the combativeness for me of my mind going so many places, thinking about being interrupted, like you said, with screens and phones and, you know, whatever. Do you think it's worse now in 2020 than it was in 1950 versus 1800 versus, or do you think this is the human experience? Yeah. I mean, part of, part of me wants to be that, you know, 80 year old curmudgeon. That's okay. Over, boomer. <laughs> right. Yeah. wants to be over there in the corner, just going back in my day. Uh, and I, I do believe that we have instant, you know, access, right. The way we didn't have before. Right. So they we weren't pinged with our cell phones constantly and no, buzzed. Right. And we don't have, you know, the, the news cycle is different now. Um, but the noise of it uh, seems to be more divisive and more chaotic because of, of the misinformation that's actually being put out. Right. So you look back at maybe the 50s when they were actually writing articles and printing them in the paper they were vetting their sources and doing right. that properly. And they weren't able to fully, like straight across the board, they weren't able to have to send out and publish misinformation, right? They weren't rewarded and encouraged by the number of clicks on, exactly. a, on a soundbite. And so your motives, your, you know, your, your agendas and all of those things change. And so uh, in a way, I think that we, it is different, you know, in 2020, um, but it's our new reality so we have to find a way forward mm-hmm. and turning it off and throwing it in the lake isn't the answer. Right. It's um, not going away. No, it's not going away. And we, we use it for its conveniences. I mean, I think that it's amazing, you know, that sure. we have, I mean, I have a watch that, you know, wakes up when I look at it, it feels like, you know, mm-hmm. it's a strange thing. I love the conveniences of that, but we have to use them versus allowing them to use us. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where the noise comes in. If we give in to that activity, mm-hmm. and uh, and then all of a sudden we feel like, well, because this is, you know, if we get in the rabbit hole of looking on the socials for, you know, thirty minutes, that's thirty minutes we won't have back, mm. you know. Mm. And if we're especially if we're sitting next to someone that we are missing moments with, mm. or missing good. an opportunity mm. with, um, because we're looking down at a screen. Just because it's there, um, so I think the noise that we that I'm trying to write about in that I think it, it's it hints at all of those things because there's a cause and effect. Let's jump ahead to the section on wonder because um, I, I think it's part of the, the this experience that many of us go through. Um, one of the primary center bullseyes of of this awakening, this is this sense of unknowing, estrangement, mysteriousness. Um, chapter 16, you talk about the thin places, and that, that was something that, that I um, have come to the awareness of in the past year or so. In studying some, some ancient Celtic faiths, they talk about the thin places. Can you uh, talk about that and explain what you mean in that chapter? Yeah, well, there's a lot there, and these are sometimes physical places mm-hmm. that we experience here on Earth that have a sense of otherness to them, mm-hmm. right? So we can be at the foot of a waterfall and just sense something that we can't quite put into words. Mm-hmm. And if we 
tried to put them into words, it would be inadequate. So these moments and these places, these physical places, but they're also moments that I think transcend destinations and places, right? So, and I've always been fascinated with Celtic spirituality and Celtic culture, um, for better or for worse. And, uh, and that's kind of uh, the, the initiation of this concept probably comes from that place of the, the ancient Celts. And I think there is a need and a desire underneath all of our surfaces for the other, mm. like the otherness. There's something that we can't quite explain. Something that maybe it's magic that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, maybe it's a transcendence. Transcendence, right. Maybe it's uh, just something that's not normal. Right. Outside you know? of space-time reality, mm-hmm. is there something more? And it seems the, as though there's a thread that go, runs through human history, mm-hmm. every culture, there are mystics, there are um, people who are contemplative, and they seem to either rise above or, or below, depending on how you define it, sure. um, what's going on in that culture, and even beyond their own religions. So when you read, um, I've said this before, when you read the... Um, maybe Muslim mystics, and you read Hindu mystics, and you read Christian mystics, you read Jewish mystics, they're all saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. It's like they're not like calling out and creating a doctrine that one is, they're not saying Jesus is the way, and another one's saying, no, Allah is the way, or you know, Vishnu is the way. They're not saying that. Mm-hmm. What they're saying is that there is a there is a oneness, there is a mystery, and there's something called love that encompasses the divine that we're all part of, and everything belongs. And that theme mm. is something that we all, I think, long for as humans. We want it to be true, right? Yeah, totally. And that, that's where this thin places come in. It's like, is there, is there, could there be, and does exist? Like, what am I feeling when... You know, I go and see a mountaintop and look across a thousand miles. What is what is that feeling when I look up at a starry night? Or what am I feeling when I think my loved one that went ahead of me in death, I may have touched, pierced the veil, and there's some connection afterward. What is that, you know? Yeah, yeah I think that there's so many different aspects that resonate with us deeply and we don't like again we don't have the adequate words to frame it and it's more of an experience mm. and you know i as i speak of uh lots of different illustrations here but you know in the secret life of walter mitty one of my favorite movies over the last probably decade or so there's there's a moment where sean penn's character is about to take this picture mm. of the snow leopard right up on the mountain and and he doesn't do it, hmm. right? He'd been like seeking it for years, right? It was, yeah, it was part of those, uh, it, sh- it could have been like a photographer's bucket list, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like a, this it's this ghost, mm-hmm. you know? This is not something that you ever are blessed enough to find, much less be positioned and waiting 
could push the button. And all of that, so the weight of that moment that he puts onto this, and he's looking through the camera, and he can't bring himself to capture it. And the weight of that, you sit there, and that to me is is a thin place. You know, that may have been a destination on a massive summit, but it was also a moment where... He says the the infamous words from this movie is like, beautiful things don't ask for attention. Mm. And he just lets it pass. Mm. But he didn't let he didn't capture it on film. He captured it in reality. Mm-hmm. And he lived in it. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's moments of that, those thin places transcend destinations right or physical spaces those are sometimes a moment that we find ourselves in Mm -hmm. and uh, i've had moments like that on a baseball field Mm -hmm. i've had those with my children at the park Um, because i think again it comes back to an awareness right if we have an awareness of our reality or what our hopes are or our uh our stillness allows us to be present. Mm-hmm. And how are we supposed to uh, do anything else if we're not living in that moment? And so I think that is one way of looking at thin places other than just being destination mm-hmm. um, focused. That's so good. Um, the last section in your book, the last several chapters, is reconstruction. And some of the chapter titles are Post Church, Not Alone, Keep Going the Canterbury Path. Um, And one of the things you say on page 107 is, a healthy church environment will help you come to the end of yourself. Christ-centric teaching invites us into a narrative that is much bigger than our own single story. That's a a fascinating... um, It's a fascinating statement because I think so many times... The church environment can be very consumeristic, it can be a transactional, it can be, uh, I'm not going to go over there because I don't get anything out of it, or I don't like what they're doing, or this this meets the needs of my kids in the youth group. And you're talking about a different way. You're talking about actually flipping it on its head and saying, no, a, a, a church environment should... Um, you should be able to lose yourself in the community and find something deeper and maybe even experience these thin places that are beyond knowing, that are beyond uh, ego, self-awareness, really more to something much bigger. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I think our environments that we find ourselves in will dictate that potential, Mm. right? So... If we find ourselves in an overly programmed situation, it'll be more difficult to find those in those margins. If you find yourself in a an environment that maybe doesn't carve in like the space of actually just being together, mm. like whether meals or drinks or whatever, you'll find more difficulty mm. to do that. Mm. What we're seeing is that we're all craving and regardless if you're a five or the most introverted six or, or even the most extroverted seven, mm-hmm. we all crave 
that connection that allows for deeper understanding of life. And we understand life through one another's experience. And if we don't understand one another's experience and stories, then we're missing those opportunities. So, you know, back in the day, I would say when I first moved to Nashville, even, uh, I, I had a church environment that I resonated with and connected with on Sundays. But the rest of the time, it was me hanging out with a group of friends at their apartment Mm. or somewhere out to eat, you know, and it was giving each other space to hear one another, to see one another and be still with one another. Like it was sometimes we were watching movies. Sometimes we were just listening to music. You know, I had the nerdiest friends when I first moved here that were listening to vinyl before it's resurgent. <laughs> and we remember listening to uh, Joshua Tree, U2's Joshua Tree on vinyl that had to be the first pressing, right? Mm-hmm. And this was like, you know, 99 or 2000 or something. And we're sitting in my friend's living room just listening to it. And it's just resonating throughout their apartment, their duplex and this wooden floors. And and it was a moment that I remember because we were all connecting mm. in that moment. And I remember having funny little debates because I was always like, you know, I just don't like the drummer for you too. And, you know, that really irritated one of my friends that was sitting in it. So we had this debate. And I was like, no, it's he's their weak link. And he's like, no, he gets out of the way. And he like sets the foundation for everybody else to play their part. Well, I learned a lot because I was listening to the way he saw it, mm-hmm. right? I was listening to... See it through his eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, and, and to a degree, he changed my mind. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And then fast forward to now and how uh, I marry a woman who loves you too. Mm-hmm. And so it's a good thing that I have this tolerance and <laughs> this thing and... And I have actually come to uh, appreciate it as well. But because we give each other space to be who we are and we lean into those things, I think, uh, you know, church can sometimes in certain constructs get it in the way of that um, unless we're providing spaces to, you know, allow for one another's stories mm. and and hurts and pains, not just the not just the accomplishments and the highs, you know, it's easy to celebrate a summit, but it's really when someone's going through a a diagnosis or a prognosis or something that we have to sit in those places that's uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, And that's where true connection and I would say communion that I speak of a lot is commute. True communion is communion with one another as well as with God. Mm. And so that is what I think that we need to cultivate more space for. That's good. Um, I want to wrap up the last few minutes that we have together. And one of the one of the things you you obviously talk about a whole a whole chapter or two is for you your reconstruction path was into Anglicanism. Mm-hmm. And for those that are listening who don't really understand what that even means or don't have a, a really good um, perspective on what it means to be an Anglican priest for you. Can you just, you know, first of all, what is Anglicanism? What's it 
just give a, a real, real high level uh, history and overview and what it has provided for you. Mm. Yeah. In short, Anglicanism is one of the oldest streams of Christian expression. And uh, that comes from the probably 15th, 16th century. Uh, some people would love to tout that you know Anglicans are Reformed Catholics. And uh, some folks that you talk with about Anglicanism say that Anglicanism actually started before all of that, almost even traced back to the 3rd and 4th century in the British Isles, like in the Celtic right, kind Celtic. of regions. Mm-hmm where Celtic spirituality was kind of Anglican-ish before it be- got a name. Those that lived off of the grid of the Roman Outside church. the Roman control. Yeah. And so and in a way, um, I, I love that concept and that idea. And personally, I don't really care about all of the, the streams of, uh, you know, the, the heritage of this is so historic and so legitimate and yada yada. Is the Church of Scotland connected to Anglicanism in any way, or is that separate, or what is that? Yes, they are part of the the Anglican okay. kind of communion, if, if I'm not mistaken, in some capacity. And that's the beautiful part is that you know, you've got millions and millions of people worldwide, right? I mean, it's the third largest expression of the of the Christian or the way of Jesus in in our common day. And it, the part that I love about what it is is uh, the space to be who we are. And it, it's it's a broader scope. Uh, via media is this meaning that says uh, mean, the middle path. It's this concept of holding things in tension. If you looked at the compass rose, this dial that says on one end, it says Catholic. On the other end, it says charismatic. On one end, it says uh, conservative. On one end, it will say liberal. And it gives you this concept that this is our reality and who we are, and we will live in that tension together for the common good. And I see that through the way of Jesus that allows all of our differences to actually be celebrated and not an issue. Now, granted, we all make our issues because that's what humans do best is we like to divide and conquer and pit one another against who can do what and who's allowed to be what and what's good and what's not. Um, That is no different in uh, Anglicanism as it is anywhere else. But what it's given me an opportunity to do is flourish in contemplation and deep spirituality and be tethered to something bigger and mm-hmm. that holy that one holy catholic and apostolic church that catholic small c meaning universal it's the global yeah. it's like we are a part of those who have gone on those who are and those who will be we're connected mm-hmm. and so it's you know it has a, a mystical kind of uh, vibe to it and some people love that more than others for myself, it gives me a space to belong and to be um, really who I'm becoming more comfortable in being. And that's, that's just the ongoing learning. What I appreciate about Anglicanism, um, and I've been to Luminous Parish where, where you're the priest there, is that um, there, is an, there, is a, there is a freedom um, 
and a openness of it, it. It feels like anyone, regardless of where they are and what they believe, um, there is a space to explore that. And that's what I appreciate is for those, those of us who have come from a Christian tradition, um, you can find um, orthodoxy there uh, in the creeds and in the... Um, like you said, universality every week of what you are joining together with people who share that. But there's also a space that says, um, if you are not sure what you believe, you're welcome to come and explore that too. And there is no, I, do, I have not experienced any type of um, feeling threatened or trying to push an absolute uh, saying, here's the way of Jesus and we will love and include uh, everyone, and we will explore what that means, not only on a spiritual level, but what it means in a communal level, what it means in a political level, what it means in a a living it out in social justice. Um, So you're not afraid to go to those areas because that's what love does, but you also give the space and the freedom for people to explore and experience that. Yeah, absolutely. And that, that's my hope, and so that's encouraging to hear. Yeah, awesome. Yeah. How can people get your book? Obviously, Amazon.com, Learning to Be, Reconstructing Peace and Spiritual Health by Chad E. Jarnigan. Any, mm-hmm. it, where else can people connect with you? Anywhere and everywhere. So wherever you like to buy books, it'll be present there, and there's ebook versions as well. And uh, you can go to learningtobebook.com, Perfect. and that's the site that you can find out more about it. Get all the endorsements there. Connect with you on social media, all the good yeah, stuff. Yeah, all the stuff's there. Good, good. You got another one coming? Yeah, working on, uh, like I said, this is kind of what feels to be a primer mm-hmm. um, for several things. I'm, I'm kind of leaning into three different concepts of what to do next. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the next one will be a bit of a, a combination of practice mm-hmm. and uh, like abstract concept that will lead to practices essentially. So um, I'm really excited about that. Good. Well, learningtobebook.com and uh, Jarnagin is spelled J-A-R-N-A-G-I-N for those of you who want to to search that up. So Chad, thanks again. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Bob. All right. We'll talk to you soon.